0: This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring, hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me, it's me, it's
1: the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing, so be it through 1037thegame.com, the free 1037thegame mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and of course, any other way you consume your favorite podcasts, we got you covered right here, right now. And here's the thing, this is going to be a very different episode of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. we won't be more dedicated towards what's going on currently in the sport of professional wrestling, because I want to do something different. I have been wanting to do some retro reviews for a good bit. In fact, I had an episode planned that kind of got scrapped for a lot of different reasons. Looking back at the first ever Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. Because that was about 11 years ago. Maybe I'll touch back on that show down the road. But for right now, I wanted to look back at one pay-per-view in particular. And that was Survivor Series 1990. Why? Well, it's simple. 30 years ago, The Undertaker made his debut. It's been 30 years, almost to the day. And this is coming out on Thursday, November 26th. This show took place November 22nd, 1990. The beginning of the decade and probably one of the more interesting periods in the sport of professional wrestling. And I'll get to that. But of course, let's take a look back at Survivor Series 1990. Our first ever retro review.
0: It's the immortal Hulk Hogan and the Earthquake and the respective teams of the Big Boss Man and Dino Bravo. Joining up, when I saw Jim Duggan, Haku, Tugbo, the Barbarian, the Hulkamaniacs versus the Natural Disasters, Team Captains, the American Dream Dusty Rose, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Join up with Coco Beware and a mystery partner, along with the Anvil, Greg Hammer Valentine, Bret Hart, the Honky Tonk Man, the Dream Team versus the Million Dollar Team. Team Captains Nikolai Volkov and Sergeant Slaughter! Join up with Tito Santana, Varasukov, Bushwhacker Butch, Sato, Bushwhacker Luka Tanaka, Zipsy Alliance versus the Mercenaries! Ready? Visionaries, World Wrestling Federation Champion, the Ultimate Warrior, and Mr. Perfect, lead team members, Texas Tornado, Crash, along with Animal, Axe, Hawk, Smash, it's the Warriors versus the Perfect Team, it's the Survivor Series!
1: Seriously, can't believe it's been a little more than 30 years, probably a couple days, but since one of the most iconic superstars made his WWF debut, And now he has hung it up, at least for now. So it's interesting to kind of look back at how it all started. It was on one of the more unusual Survivor Series. I'll explain why a little bit later. But it was definitely an interesting Survivor Series, to say the least. In fact, this was the last show to take place on Thanksgiving night. It was always built as the Thanksgiving Day tradition. And, well, this was the last time it was on Thanksgiving night. They had had it in the previous three editions on Thanksgiving night. But then they moved it over to Thanksgiving Eve. For a few years from 1991 to 1994 and then the pay-per-view moved over to the Sunday before Thanksgiving to keep that tradition alive and still going on to this day every single time you watch the Survivor Series it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving it's always really cool that they continue that tradition with this pay-per-view anyways this show took place at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford Connecticut about an hour drive from the WWF headquarters in Stanford. It was a packed house with 16,000 reportedly in attendance. According to some reports, I've read 13,000 paid and a 3% buy rate. This isn't necessarily like it is now where you'd be able to see the buy rate and be like, oh, wait, like let's say 300,000 or 1 million. This was a little bit of a different. It felt very similar to how the TV ratings are now, where it's in more of a whole number and a percentage of it compared to what you would all the other pay-per-views that were out there at the time in 1990 because the pay-per-view business was booming during this time frame. But for reference the previous SummerSlam. Remember when it was just the big four pay-per-views. Then eventually they added the King of the Ring. Then you're in your houses. Then basically you had 12 pay-per-views a year. Sometimes you've had like 16, 17 pay-per-views a year. And you had a little bit of burnout back in 06. But anyways. The previous pay-per-view SummerSlam 1990. Had an attendance of 19,304. And a reported buy rate of 3.9%. One of the more profitable shows of the year. According to. Uncle Dave, I'll just go ahead and say that name going forward anytime I bring him up. But the live gate was three hundred thousand dollars with inflation nowadays, that's about six hundred K. Biggest gate of the year, but definitely, you know, interesting money to see how things change in terms of inflation. I want to doing a little guesstimate. It's almost six hundred thousand. I think it's like five hundred and ninety thousand dollars, which is definitely not chump change. It's definitely absolutely massive to be able to pull off that kind of live gate in nineteen ninety. Even more so, I'd say, in 2020, especially considering the fact that we can't have fans in the stands at all, as you saw at Survivor Series. But I mentioned the fact that 30 years ago, it was an interesting year in sports entertainment because things were kind of continuing to change in terms of how things are presented. In fact, WCW, Clash of Champions, just held their pay-per-view two days prior, Thanksgiving Thunder. And that was an interesting show with the main event being... The Nature Boy Ric Flair taking on Butch Reed of Doom, where if Flair won, he and Anderson would have a rematch. He, he and Arn Anderson, I should say, would have a rematch for the NWA World Tag Team titles at Starcade, and standing along would be Flair's chauffeur for a day. And if Reed won, Teddy would have gotten the yacht and limo and no rematch at Starcade. Suppose Flair won the match at Clash of Champions, but didn't win the main event at Starcade or the match itself. Was a street fight ended in a no contest. People complained about the Seth Rollins the Fiend match. I can about imagine if Reddit existed in 1990, WCW would have been crucified to the point where they probably wouldn't exist, is the way that one ended. Because how can you have a street fight end in a no contest? But that's beyond the point. Ole Anderson had hit the book at this point in WCW, but things were about to change as the calendar flipped to 1991 and Dusty Rhodes returned from his time up north. And became the head booker again. I believe this was going to be after the Royal Rumble 1991. Because Dusty did make an appearance. We'll talk about Dusty Rose in a little bit, baby. But another territory went the way of, well, territory wrestling. in world-class championship wrestling. WCCW wrapped up their time. Their last show was the day after the Survivor Series. And there were a lot of issues surrounding him. He's, one of the big things was the Sportatorium at the time. And if you are a big fan of Dallas Wrestling, you'll know what I'm talking about with the Sportatorium. It's a historic venue. And they raised their rent, which caused you know world class championship wrestling to run a lot of shows at a loss most weeks. And Kevin Von Erich, because you had everything kind of go on with their company, and they just did not have anything going. In fact, they announced during that show before the show even started, this is going to be the last event they ever put together. And this was kind of things where things were, and they were behind on payments. Kevin Von Erich couldn't keep up, so they were done after that. And then you have. The last regional territory promotions around after that were, well, you know, Jeff Jarrett's papa, Jerry Jarrett, the USWA, which definitely was helped a lot by the partnership they wanted forming later on in the 90s with the USWA and the WWF, but also Don Owens, Pacific Northwest Wrestling, which still has an existence at least somewhat, but for the most part that ended in 1992 while USWA wrapped up its time in existence in nineteen ninety seven. So we were still had like the last couple remnants of regional wrestling in the, in the territory days. Another big thing that was actually happening, it was already kind of you knew it was inevitable, but it came to an end with the AWA. They were about to keel over and die by the end of the year because they had an ESPN deal that was about to run out. If you remember back in the day, whenever ESPN Classic used to have really cool stuff, and they used to run like old AWA shows. That's where they wound up getting a lot of their content from. And they had a deal with ESPN to have their AWA run on their programming. And this came to an end in August, well, at the end of the year. But they hadn't had a show since August. So basically they were airing, running the rest of their shows from like whatever point till August. They ran those episodes until it ran out. Of it. Basically the, they already knew they were getting canceled. It was all said and done. But that's kind of where we're at in the sport of professional wrestling. In, at least in terms of America, because, I mean, obviously, in 1990, you weren't necessarily able to keep tabs as much on what was going on over in the land of the rising sun with New Japan Pro Wrestling, which definitely was having a good time in the early 90s. But with all that preamble, let's go ahead and get right on with the show itself. Before we do that, one more thing. we start Before we start with the main card itself, Shane Douglas beat Buddy Rose in the dark match, yet Playboy Buddy Rose was still with the company but it turned out he left back in early, early 1991. Douglas left well after the Royal Rumble. Due to some personal reasons with his father. But showed up from time to time before. Going to WCW. And then he wound up going back to WWF. Then I think he went back to WCW. Then to, to ECW later on in the decade. Definitely jumped around a lot. Met franchise watch. I might talk about that down the road. Maybe once we hit another franchise Shane Douglas story. But anyways, so let's get back to the main show. First off. The intro is awesome. The Survivor Series theme here is underrated in terms of the big four pay-per-view themes of old. Favorite one for me off the top is the WrestleMania theme for 3-8. It is absolutely top tier, but this one's really good. The theme song goes crazy for about like three minutes. The saxophone, just everything about it, it hit a different level for me because I never heard this theme. But the second I loaded it up, on the network, I was blown away by it. And I've never watched Survivor Series 1990. I've seen clips of it. Obviously, we've seen all the clips of The Undertaker, but never seeing the actual show in its entirety was an experience. And the fact that it's only a two-hour show. So your boy was all the way here for. It. Then we get Ronnie Piper and Gorilla Monsoon are on commentary. I love Gorilla. He did a great job telling the story and selling everything, but Piper just kept jumping in. And it felt like those almost inopportune times and just like blurring things out, it very much felt a little strange. And it felt like Roddy Piper just could not be a commentator. I'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but I just couldn't get into it. They also mentioned the fact that this is being broadcast on the Armed Forces Network because Operation Desert Shield had started back in August, and this becomes a predominant storyline in the WWF until about after WrestleMania, with Sergeant Slaughter, Hulk Hogan, the main event. Sergeant Slaughter has since become an Iraqi sympathizer. We'll talk about him later. But, of course, it's all about the tag team matches. Every single one of these contests is going to be elimination tag, the four versus four traditional Survivor Series type thing. And I mentioned the intro. The intro card was really cool, and you heard the audio of it when I, we started the retro review, and it was so darn cool that they showed like each and every graphic and explained, like, oh, like here's the captains, here's the teams. Because if you didn't necessarily watch the WWF as much, but you always bought the pay-per-view, especially here in the South, you didn't necessarily have the MSG network to where you were able to watch all of their shows to be able to keep up with it that way because you always were watching more of the Superstation. But let's say you wanted to watch a WWF pay-per-view and this was one you wanted to see, the Survivor Series. This was great. But I'll say this, this is one thing that just absolutely stood out and I'm still laughing about it right when I saw the graphics for the show. Because it's the first match on the card is the Warriors versus the Perfect team. And the graphic makes it look like Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, is teaming up with three Gimps. That's exactly what my what I wrote down in the notes. It was just something I thought about. And it's Demolition, obviously. It's Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, and Demolition taking on the Warriors, which are Ultimate Warrior Road Warriors, or as they call them in the WWF, Legion of Doom, and Texas Tornado. And after the heels come out, because the heels came out first and they drew a good bit of heat to start off the show. But then they go to the back and they play this promo. I'm going to go ahead and run that audio for you right now because it is absolutely amazing. And it really encapsulates what the WWF was as it was transitioning from the 80s into the 90s. It still kept some of the, let me tell you something, brother. Because I mean, obviously had Hulk Hogan there. But it definitely encapsulated how promos were done back then versus how they're done now.
0: I don't know what my thoughts are exactly, except I know the four of us are going to take the four of them. Whatever it takes, Gene. All right, Intercontinental Champion, the Texas Tornado. You've seen what demolition can do. And you see what perfect can do. Now check out what we can do. From the Legion of Doom Animal. Demolition, Mr. Perfect. Submission is one way to go down. And for all the little warriors, the little tornadoes, and the little doomers, we won't let you down. World Wrestling Federation champion, the ultimate warrior, Captain. What ain't nothing to do with anything close to perfectness? I've asked all the skeletons that have already made the sacrifice to follow me and these three... Three warriors, the Legion of Doom, and the a Tornado, into this battle! Whether to walk farther than all the rest, or to stay behind and make a sacrifice! It makes no difference, Mr. Perfect, in demolition. For as the ultimate warrior, I surround us in this force field, and we have become one. We have formed a bond like no other, and no one! can break what we have created. There is no poison, no creation, and no medicine to cure what we have. You, Mr. Perfect and Demolition, will not survive. Very good, Ultimate Warriors. Let's go back to ringside. Oh.
1: Now let's get to the actual action in the ring. Axe gets eliminated first pretty quickly after Ultimate Warrior gets the hot tag, and he came out like a house of fire. And this is not like business as usual for him. He hits a bunch of shoulder blocks and hits the splash for the three count, eliminating one part of Demolition. Then we get to a good bit of the match with Demolition and Legion of Doom going back and forth. And, of course, if you have known about the history of the WWE or then WWF, a good bit of the match consisted of Demolition and Legion of Doom going back and forth. And, of course, Demolition was created as their version of the Road Warriors. Because WCW had the actual Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. And then we have the two teams on the same roster. It felt like the dream match that WWF had been wanting to see for a good while. I like the Young Bucks and FTR and AEW now. This was what everybody was looking forward to. Because everybody had their own take on which one was better. But what's interesting is these two had faced off only twice prior on TV. And this was both in six-man tags. With the Ultimate Warrior. The team teams did have two versus two, but that was after you kind of had things break off in terms of the original formation of Demolition. And it want to being, you know, a couple times in tag team action until, I'd say, 1991. And then Demolition, they were nearing their end of the time of the Federation wrapping up after Mania 7. Then things get a little heated with them going back and forth, back and forth. Animal Hawk crush and smash all in the ring. And then all four members get disqualified. This was one of the many things that threw me off base a little bit. It's more because I understood Animal and, I believe, Crush. They deserve to get disqualified because they actually assaulted the referee. You can't put your hands on official. That's a certified fact. But you could have overlooked the other stuff because it didn't necessarily affect what was going on and why so-and-so attacked the official. You can't do that. They deserved it to get disqualified. But the other two should have stayed in there. But it all it talks about the story. With the Texas Tornado and Ultimate Warrior left all alone with Mr. Perfect. And it is just nuts the rest of the way here. Tornado throws Mr. Perfect out of the ring. And the Warrior starts wailing, wailing on him. He starts beating him up outside the ring. And then eventually he gets his hands on Bobby Heenan and clotheslines the brain over the barricade. Pretty cool to see a young Shane McMahon as well. He's out there. I'm going to assume he is the ringside enforcer for this contest because it doesn't necessarily seem like, hey, he is a second referee. He's just out in the ring. He stays outside the ring throughout the show. But this is the first time we're able to outright see a very young Shane McMahon, then named Shane Stevens, be an official. Really cool stuff. Then later on, Texas Tornado gets eliminated after a perfect plex because whenever Tornado wound up hitting, the exposed turnbuckle that Mr. Perfect set up. That set up the perfect plex for the elimination. Now it's just Ultimate Warrior who had the trunks that said Lone Survivor on them. They didn't notice this till uh, like the final moments. And it made you wonder like why they actually had him wear that. It feels like it'd be a absolute spoiler. If it comes to finish, Warrior just does his typical thing. It's his version of hulking up. And you can just tell. like If you've ever watched a Warrior match, this is exactly what you expect. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually, I'd say, in fact, a good thing to see that go down. But you know he feeds for like five minutes, and then he gets the finish, gets the win, and the splash. Now he's going to advance to the finals of the night, where it's going to be the the grand finale. It was a grand elimination match. We'll get to that a little bit later. But now we get to the million-dollar team versus the dream team. The big selling point of this match was who is the mystery partner for DiBiase's team? Who in the world could it be? So right now we see Ted DiBiase, Rhythm and Blues, who are Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine. Two guys I've met. I've seen Honky Tonk Man on two separate occasions. Really entertaining guy. Then I met Greg Valentine, who very much just felt like he didn't want to be there and had the worst clothesline I ever saw when he wrestled in White Castle in a six-man tag main event. And that was the finish, by the way. He had the he basically like walked with the clothesline. And it was absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen in a main event. And yes, it was an indie show, but my God, could have had a little bit more effort. And then we get to see who the final member is. And Ted DiBiase introduced him, The Undertaker. Not Kane, The Undertaker, just absolutely introducing him as The Undertaker. A hell of a debut being at Survivor Series. And the way they filled him made him look absolutely massive. Undertaker's about 6'10", I believe. And they made him look like he was about seven and a half feet tall. I loved it. Also, a much shorter entrance for him than we'd get over the years. So it felt like he moved at a relatively brisk pace considering how much we saw him take up about like a five-minute entrance in the 2000s and 2010s. Before the match, we wound up finding out the Gorilla Monsoon mentioned Brett's, excuse me, it was Roddy Piper. I wrote down Gorilla Monsoon, but it was uh, Roddy Piper mentioned that Bret Hart's brother Dean had passed away the day before. So Bret Hart was wrestling with like his heart being heavy. According to Dave Meltzer, Dean had long-time kidney issues. He was told by doctors to have dialysis every day for about four hours. Some days he'd forget to show up, quote-unquote, and some days he'd show up for an hour and then leave. And then finally, he was found dead the day before Survivor Series by, in his home by Smith Hart. We'll talk about that a little bit later because there's an interesting story behind this. So Undertaker immediately sets a tone that he is impervious to pain. Didn't take a really a single bump in this match. I didn't notice anything in terms of him actually going down on flatback. He definitely wound up taking a lot of hits. But it wasn't, you know, the way we think about it in terms of how Undertaker's debut has been built up, it felt like he just absolutely looked like the monster could be taken down. The entire team tried to get him and failed. Coco Beware eliminated with ease following the first ever Tombstone Piledriver by the Undertaker that wasn't necessarily worked out to perfection. Maybe it's just the fact that this is Undertaker's first time on national TV and not understanding where the cameras are and where the hard cam is. Maybe it's just also the fact that's the way things were at the time in terms of the WWF. He does a tombstone pile driver opposite the hard cam that he moves the guy over so he can get the actual pinfall. It just looks a little weird, but it would have, it still establishes that as an absolute monster of a finish. And the Undertaker gets that firm first elimination as expected. Coco beware. Then the hockey talk, man, Later on in the contest, he gets eliminated by Jim the Anvil Neidhart after the running power slam. And at this point, this is when I realized how much wrestling back in 1990 was mostly just strikes because you never saw much of you know, the grapples, the power slams, like nothing like we see nowadays where we see vertical suplexes every match and T-bones and all this stuff. It was very bare bones. I Maybe mean, That was just the fact of how a lot of these guys wrestle. You notice it more when other guys are in it. But with Bret Hart, it's a different discussion. But anyways, it was just something that took a little while to get used to. So Jim Neidhart eliminates Song Kong Man. Then you had Neidhart get eliminated out of nowhere by DBI, so who wound up having the tights. And then it goes back to Undertaker. Undertaker has some great moments. He winds up choking the life out of Bret Hart for a little bit. Really cool stuff. And then Dusty Rhodes eliminate gets eliminated by Undertaker after a top rope double axe handle, which looked awesome. And it further proved why, like, Watching a guy like The Undertaker who just looks like a monster and is six foot ten, climbing up the top rope, it makes him look even more badass. And then he does get himself counted out long after to make himself look a little bit like a Melvin. But it was all because he was trying to protect his manager, Brother Love, and just waylays Dusty Rhodes with several punches. Did And, you know, the whole counted out thing did not make sense to me because Taker did tag out just before he got out of the ring. Maybe a bit inadvertent, but they messed up that call right there. I understand you're just basically riding off the Undertaker, but you could have just said, "Hey, he wound up like getting disqualified because he's beaten up on Dusty a little bit too much after he had already limited." Anyways, Greg the Hammer Valentine gets eliminated by Bret Hart later, and now we're down to the team captains, it's just Bret Hart versus Ted DiBiase, and this was a lot of fun to see these two go at it. They wound up going very back and forth throughout. And Hart tees the sharpshooter doesn't go for it and the match goes on for about four more minutes. They're slugging it out, duking it out, but DiBiase gets the win as a sole survivor. Bret Hart goes for the crossbody, but then DiBiase turns it around. He basically flips over and is able to move his body around enough to get the pin and the win. And you can just see like Bret Hart the second they cut, the second they switch over to that hard camera that they're gonna have for the rest of this like segment. You can tell when Browder gets up, he just clearly just drops the F-bomb. And I I can read lips well enough, he straight-up dropped the F-bomb, and it was really funny to me. But then it turns out, according to a 2015 interview with Sports Illustrated, Brett talked about the finish, saying that, quote, I lost to DiBiase at the end, but we had a nice little sequence there before we went into the finish, and he beat me. I remember that being a salute. To my brother Dean, a tribute to him. That match always had meaning to me. Really cool stuff right there from Bret Hart. But I think the bigger story was The Undertaker's debut in this match, and I think he lived up to the expectations and lived up to the hype that was definitely building. Of course, we'd see more of The Undertaker over the next couple months, and think he had a match the day, a couple days before, if I'm not mistaken. And this was on Monday on WWF Superstars. Monday Night Raw wasn't on back then, but it was WWF Superstars, and that didn't air until about mid-December. So you weren't able to see it. You saw it live. You saw the first ever instance of The Undertaker, but never saw anything other than that. And that was against him. I can't remember his name, but it was Mario something. I don't have it off top. But then we get to the next match. The Visionaries versus the Vipers built up because Rick Martell blinded Jake Roberts in one of his eyes with his arrogant scent on the Brother Love show. And you just saw that the Visionaries were way more overpowered than the Vipers. You had the Warlord, Power, and Glory. Hercules and Paul Roma, but I'm going to get to Hercules right now. Cause I just noticed this throughout the match. This was just like in your face. Every time they cut to the heel side on the apron, they're showing everybody. And you can clearly see Hercules has his trunks. Maybe have shrunk in the wash. Cause his cheeks are just hanging out there throughout the match. And I'm almost like, I can't explain it, but it was just, what are you doing? Like, why did he even think this was a good idea? And it just blows it blows my mind. That was the thing that happened. And another thing that blew my mind was Mike Kyoto was in WWE at this point. I'm talking about Shane McMahon. In 2020, Mike Kyoto now did some stuff with AEW. But it's crazy to think he was in that company all the way back in 1990. He started in 89, but it was something that... I didn't necessarily realize until the third match in because he was there. I think Earl Hebner called the first couple matches. I know Joey Morello was in there. Gorilla Monsoon, son. I know they had a lot of people that were involved in it that, had, that were notable. Mike Kyoto was one that just stood out to me. And this also made me realize how much the Rockers ruled back in the day because I can remember a lot of high speed stuff back when I watched them on AWA television on an ESPN Classic. But this was just high speed moves, and they were like way ahead. Compared to the plotting action we saw when anyone else was in the ring, especially in the final two matches before the grand finale, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But he had like Michaels look crisp as hell. I know he had like one part of the match where he did like a transition. It was almost like felt like almost almost a hip toss lands on his feet, flips the guy around on his own. Really well done. Enjoy the way that the he the work. He also threw a Hurricane Rana, which in 1990 probably blew people's minds apart, especially if they're not like necessarily huge on wrestling outside of the WWF at the time but Warlord gets the elimination first of Marty Jannetty after he counters the flying nothing with a body slam that definitely looked a lot like you know Orton's slam that he does off the Irish whip then we get Superfly tries to get the crossbody off the second rope he nails it But very similar to the last match, you have rig the model model motel, flip over, and grab the tights to get the elimination. Seeing the same spot for a second straight match is a little weird. Then we get to Paul Roma, a future four horseman, eliminate Shawn Michaels with the Powerplex, which, by the way, is a really cool finisher. I'd never really seen it as a tag team finisher before. Power and Glory had a great one. It was basically you had... Hercules set him up for the superplex, and just as he lands in the superplex, your boy Paul Roma dives off the top rope, which is on the next corner. It looks really cool, and everything was really crisp with that every time they did it. The odds brought, proved to be too much. Roberts tries to build momentum, but he can't do it. He can't necessarily see as well in the other eye, so it winds up creating a, a giant cluster, and Roberts gets eliminated by countout, meaning the Visionaries have completed the sweep. This is the first time in the history of of Survivor Series, that there was an actual clean sweep. Great storytelling in this match, especially with Jake Roberts being blinded in storyline, because you could see when they'd zoom in on Roberts, you'd see one of his eyes was literally just white. I think they had basically painted it or something, but it was really cool the way they built it. And it's even crazier that in 2020, we had an angle where Ray Mysterio was blinded, and they kept that going for absolutely months. But it was interesting to see all that go down. Now we get to the Hulkamaniacs versus the Natural Disasters. And before the match, Hulk Hogan dedicates it to the armed forces out there. Again, they b- keep bringing this up throughout the program. And Hulk Hogan dedicates the match to the armed forces out there. Hacksaw had the yellow ribbons tied around his signature 2x4. like that touch a lot because, again, it's all about the real Americans that are the Hulkamaniacs. You got the big boss man. You got Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And you've got everybody's favorite Uncle Fred. Dugboat. So then we get to the natural disasters. It's Earthquake. It's Haku. It's Dino Bravo. It's just, it's nuts to see all these guys in there. Big Ball Man, the Barbarian. So you get to see all these guys go at it. But then Haku gets eliminated like in a minute by Big Boss Man. The Big Ball Man gets it done eliminating him in short order. But what was really crazy was the second Hulk Hogan came out, just like they came out and already had Big Boss Man, yeah, Big ball Man, yet Earthquake, yeah, all those guys come out, and then Hulk Hogan's music hits, the crowd goes completely ape. But getting back to the match itself, Hacksong gets disqualified for using the two x four on Earthquake, which made sense, all things considered, and it was definitely kind of egged on by the Weasel himself, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and then Dino Bravo gets eliminated by Hulk Hogan who caught him in the small package, which I'd never seen Hulk Hogan actually use that way to finish a match, but it made sense all things considered because he's trying to give that desperation when to get things done. Then Big Bomb Man gets eliminated, making a 3-2 advantage for the natural disasters after Earthquake splashes on him. And then we get a double countout with Tugboat and Earthquake. They used to be teaming together. Now they're worst enemies. and They're squaring off and just start brawling around the ring, get counted out leaving it up to the Barbarian and the Hulkster. And this is a very short end of the match. And I think you can guess where this goes. The big boot, the leg drop, after Hulk Hogan gets a Hulk out mode, after Barbarian hits a move for the two count, and he just basically starts hulking up from there. He dominates, he gets the win after the leg drop, and turns his focus to Bobby Heenan and throws him out of the ring. And it made me think, for a manager, Bobby Branden, Bobby the Brain Heenan sure took a lot of bumps in his day. Monsoon promotes Royal Rumble 1991 coming up in January. And boy, that was an interesting one, especially when you think about the guy that just wrestled. Spoilers, he won the Royal Rumble that year, but it wasn't for the number one contendership. I think he got it later on in December. He got the title opportunity, which eventually became Hogan versus Slaughter. We'll talk about Slaughter in a little bit. Macho Man comes out for an interview with Mean Gene in between this match and the final Survivor Series match outside the grand finale, obviously comes up for an interview with me and Gene and calls out the ultimate warrior, which sets up an eventual WrestleMania match between the two where macho man has to retire, which we'll probably talk about further down the road. Then we get to the Alliance versus the mercenaries. I understand why, but it was so weird to see Nikolai Volkov, a noted basic like hater of America. And he was a Russian and you wound up turning him into a babyface and be pro American. But it made sense because early in the year, he broke away from his tag team partner, Boris Zukov, and the Bolsheviks in April. It was all about America versus the recent Iraqi sympathizer, Sergeant Slaughter. And for what it's worth, Volkov left at the end of the year. Sergeant Slaughter cuts a promo, and it's a typical anti-American promo and calls out President Bush. Wish the fans were booing more here. Maybe they just didn't care, but maybe they just couldn't hear the promo. I've been trying to figure this out. And again, it's 1990. Maybe it was just hard for them. They didn't have it hooked up so the crowd could hear, but it felt very much, you know, there was a missed opportunity to have this thing filled with just booze. But of course, the American dream that the rule of the baby, he did the math and he absolutely puts together really cool stuff. In this match. Oh, excuse me. He's not in this match. I keep forgetting how things go in this. Anyways, Tito Santana eliminated Borazukov Zukov in under a minute with the flying forearm. Bushwhacker Luke eliminates Sato in quick order thanks to a double team with Bushwhacker Butch. Tito Santana eliminates Tanaka, not Masiro Tanaka, but Pat Tanaka with the forearm. And Tito Santana hits this thing. It's very much like the phenomenal forearm, but without the springboard. And it's just as effective. And we haven't even got to the three-minute mark of this match, and Slaughter already completely, completely in control, Daddy. And then we get to Slaughter taking control of the match. He dominates Volkov and eliminates him with a snapmare arm drop, snapmare, snap-mare elbow drop combo. And then the Bushwhackers turn the momentum around, but Slaughter stops it after getting the knees up on the splash, and then hits him with a gutbuster, making it a two-on-one advantage. Then Butch gets eliminated like 20 seconds later. Slaughter just hits him with a huge clothesline. And then right from there, it is absolutely all Tito Santana. He comes out like a house of fire, takes control, and becomes a straight-up match. And then you see at one point Slaughter pull the chicken bleep heel move and throws him into the ref, causing the ref bump. And then General Adnan hits him with the Iraqi flag after he connects with the flying forearm onto Sergeant Slaughter. The ref's still down. Adnan hits him with the flag. Then Slaughter has his camel clutch in. But the official rules that Slaughter has been DQ'd. And the crowd went wild for this. This is probably the biggest pop outside of Hulk Hogan. When Howard Finkel, the late great Howard Finkel, announces that he had been eliminated. It's the suspense of that finish was perfect. The way he paused. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the mat. No, ladies and gentlemen, Sergeant Slaughter is or has been disqualified. The way they did that. Was absolutely perfect because it got you like you're like oh no he lost you won and then it's yes he lost and everybody starts cheering and losing their damn minds it was perfect the way Howard Finkel handled that with a plum is so damn good but now we get to the part that everybody talks about in terms of what was good with the Undertaker and good with I'd say a good bit of the show just in my opinion we get to the probably the worst part of it because we get the egg. The egg that we've been waiting to see all night or for months. We waited all night for this damn egg to be revealed. And one thing that came out in the last year was about that egg. Because Undertaker said when he got signed to the WWF and then started seeing the stuff with the egg, he thought that he was going to be in the egg. And here's that clip from the Broken Skull Sessions, the first one he did. We'll play it right now. They had this gigantic egg on the set. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. There it is. So... (laughs) Now I'm, <laughs> so I'm at home, right? And I'm trying to think, you know, everything I can do. I'm trying to grow my hair out, you know. I'm trying to come up with a different look, whatever it's going to take, right? We're always searching. So this egg appears on the show, right? And then all of a sudden, my mind just starts going like, "Oh man, they're going to bring me in." Now this is how outlandish the gimmicks were then, too. Like I'm, Agreed. I'm, I'm going to be Eggman. I had convinced myself to the point where like, my stomach hurt that I'm going to be Eggman. Mean Gene is hyping it up, asking if it was the playmate of the month for what it's worth. Miss November was Lorraine Olivia, who actually had a small role in the movie Airheads in, back in 1993. Airheads, a damn good movie. Anyways, turns out it's a turkey since it's the Thanksgiving holiday, and it's called the Gobbledygooker. It gets Mean Gene in the ring to dance. They play turkey in the straw a lot and at one point Gooker starts running the ropes, and then Mean Jean tries to and fails to run the ropes, which still absolutely made me pop and maybe like respect Mean Jean a lot more. Because he just did that stuff, like it was so entertaining. And of course, the man inside the costume was Hector Guerrero, part of the legendary Guerrero wrestling family. And it was so cool to see him in this spot. And the plan was originally to him be a mascot that eventually wrestles. But nothing that it really came up with came of it because he was Disappeared a month later after all the bad reception about that. But it wasn't until Mania 17, the Goblin Cooker had a chance to be in the ring. Part of the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania 17, one of the best ones of all time. Even this couldn't make a good pay-per-view bet. Several others have drawn the turkey suit over the years, including in this year's Survivor Series, which is really cool. 30 years ago, you have the debut of the Goblin Cooker, this time the Gugger won the 24 7 title during the kickoff show. And who was underneath it? Drew Gulak, who wore it back in 2017 on 205 Live, calling himself the Gobbledy Gulaker. I love that. The Gulacker. It's like a gobble ghoul. You I'm not going to say the rest because I'm not I don't want to cuss on this podcast and I like what I'm doing. But seriously, I've a lot of people have worn it over the years, but the fact that Drew Gulak wore has worn it twice blew my mind apart. Then we get to the main event with Ted DiBiase, Warlord, Rick Martell, Paul Roma, and Hercules taking on Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, and Tito Santana. Before the promo, they had an absolutely psychotic promo. Warrior sang a and it was just like again typical like eighties promo in nineteen ninety, and it was just so damn good, and entertaining. It got me hyped up, and I absolutely loved it. But, but we see this match go like sideways quick. Tito Santana eliminates warlord with the forearm like right away at this point i've had about enough of roddy piper because he's like oh yeah ah! he's just yelling just for, to yell and it really was bugging me a little bit but then we get to power and glory they hit the power plex but hogan kicks out of two and then hits a clothesline eliminates the future four horseman paul roma hogan continues to dominate beats rick martell to the point where rick martell gives up He's hogan throws him out the ring and he's like Run right around because he got hit in the face. Like, oh, no, you can't hit the model's face, blah, blah, blah. And he runs out of the ring and basically surrenders. He gets counted out. He's out of the match. Now it's down to Hogan, Warrior, Teddy DiBiase, and Hercules. Hogan continues to run through the heels, hitting DiBiase with a big boot, and the leg drop to eliminate the Million Dollar Man. And then we get, to the, we get towards the finish here with Hogan. He lets Warrior get that final fall on Hercules. But Hogan has to make it about him a little bit and then runs into the ring for some reason. He gets He's out of the ring. Then gets back in and after the splash. Rev's going for the three-count. So is Hogan. He's doing the three-count at the same exact time, and it's in sync, and it may be just like, what the hell's going on? And then the two th- get thrown out, throw out slick. They pose in the apron to end the show. They hand-in-hand, hand, symbolic of what happened last year with or early in the year with WrestleMania, with Hogan, beating War- Hogan losing to Warrior and War becoming the new top guy and then you see gorilla promoting the royal rumble it was weird to see him on a saturday this was gonna be in january 1991 but again royal rumble is gonna be a different story for a different day maybe next year maybe down the road but then the titan sports copyright shows up and the show is over folks it fades to black it was a different show for a lot of reasons but i was entertained by a good bit of it sometimes simple black and white good guys versus bad guys if you remember Vince fans promo heading into the attitude era it works I feel like sometimes it works. And at a time when the U.S. was at war with Iraq, and you use that as a big selling point for one of your more significant storylines with America taking on those people that are your Iraqi sympathizers, really well done. It definitely worked. And I the fact that people were still believing that pro wrestling was at least somewhat real, people weren't necessarily decrying it as fake. And the business had been completely exposed to a certain point. So Sergeant Slaughter got legitimate death threats because of his character, which is still crazy that actually happened. But then again, you had a lot of people get in that kind of situation. The fabulous Freebirds basically almost got killed in the ring after what they did to the junkyard dog back in the day after the blinding. It's absolutely just going to be so much fun to see that. Then we get to what happened next because they had a show the very next night and it was wild to think this was just 24 hours ago. But then again, this is before weekly programming rule. The WWF like Monday Night Raw and SmackDown do in 2020. It was still three years away from the start of Monday Night Raw. But it was on NBC, so it made sense because you're going to wind up getting the most eyes possible on your program. And at the fact, cable television was nearly as available as it was would become, like, in the next three to five years, at least in the, this time frame. Then we get to Ultimate Warrior. He beats Ted DiBiase by DQ. Dave Meltzer gave it three and a half stars. And then we get a great showcase match. Mr. Perfect beats Big Ballman by countout in eight minutes, 13 seconds. Great showcase for Kurt Hennig. Mr. Perfect gets it done. I can remember watching him as well in the AWA on ESPN Classic, and he had some really great bangers, if you will. Then we get to another match on the card. Rick Martell beats Tito Santana with the Boston Crab in 649. Tito looked great. Martell looked fine. It was a three-star match. Again, this is all coming from Dave Meltzer. Fairly interesting show, at least to me. But it's just like you come off of a great show like Survivor Series and you give us the main event where the stakes aren't necessarily there. I mean, the first main event, absolutely there were stakes. But this was the last of the main events in 1990. They actually kind of wrapped that up from there and then eventually Saturday night's main event went the way of the Dodo Bird until the like mid-2000s revival, which was, dare I say, interesting. But that's about all we got here with the retro review edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Appreciate you listening in however you're doing, so be it through the 103.7 The Game mobile app, be it through AudioMac, 1037 game.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, in any other way you consume your favorite podcast, make sure you leave us a review, a five star review if you love it. And if you're in the Tokyo Dome, give us a six star or better rating. We'd appreciate it. And we appreciate you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on the Cage Strong Style Podcast.